0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, TheConsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Melissa Urban, founder of Whole30. The Whole30 program eliminates cravings, improves physical energy and quality of sleep, and has changed millions of people's lives. It's a pretty amazing story. We're gonna hear how Melissa went from rehab to changing her lifestyle completely, getting into nutrition and getting in shape. Why she started a blog and ran this 30 day diet experiment that turned into what became Whole30. We'll also discuss the business behind Whole30 how she approaches partnerships of CPG brands that fit the Whole30 identity, and what led her to create her own CPG products. Without further ado, here's Melissa. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you?
1: Hi, Mike. So good to meet you. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for taking the time. I wanted to first start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction or how did you become interested in nutrition and fitness? Well,
1: it was a little bit of a roundabout approach. It actually started when I entered into recovery for my drug addiction. I was addicted for a period of about five years from my late teens and college years into my early 20s. And when I got out of rehab for the second time, I realized that I was going to have to change everything about my life if I was going to maintain my recovery. I had already relapsed once. I didn't want it to happen again. And so, you know, I made a ton of changes all at once. I changed my friends. I changed my clothes. I got a new job. I moved. I changed the music that I listened to. And I started going to the gym and eating healthy because I said to myself what would a healthy person with healthy habits do? Because that's who I wanted to become. That was desperately who I wanted to be. And I was like, well, a healthy person with healthy habits would start getting up before work and they'd go to the gym five mornings a week. And so that's what I started doing in response to my recovery. And soon it became a habit and then it became a, a real passion and a love. And I've been doing that for you know the last 22 years straight.
0: Wow. That's really just amazing. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing that for anyone that's looking to change a major, maybe habit change or anything like that, which is really, really hard to do. What would be maybe some advice that you have for them?
1: Yeah. So I have a couple tricks that I used because it wasn't easy for me to start getting up early, going to the gym. I lived in New Hampshire at the time. It was cold. It was dark in the morning. I wasn't at all fit. I had just gotten out of rehab. So it was a real challenge, but I did a couple things. The first thing that I did was I made it as easy as possible for me to maintain that habit. So every night before I went to bed, I would set out everything I needed for the next day, my gym clothes top to bottom, all the way down to like my socks, my underwear. I'd plan out, I'd get all my work clothes ready and they'd all be ready to go in the spare bedroom. I packed my lunch and it was in a bag in the fridge. So when I woke up in the morning, there was like very little friction between me and actually getting in my car to go to the gym because I had everything done the night before. The second thing I did is I told myself all I had to do was show up. That was it all I had to do was show up at the gym. And if I walked in and checked in with the front desk person and I wanted to walk right back out that door, I could. And that was it. That was all I needed to do because I had gone to the gym in the morning. And inevitably, of course, I would get there and I'd be like, well, I'm not just going to walk out. I'm already here. And I'd go in and make the effort. But it, it made showing up the goal and that allowed me just to be really consistent and successful. So the goal wasn't the workout. It wasn't to work out for 45 minutes or to hit a certain You know, weight on my squat. It was just show up. And then the other little trick that I used was I told myself. If I got out of bed in the morning and put my gym clothes on and like didn't want to go that day, I didn't have to. And I almost never needed to use that trick because I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning and I'd put my gym clothes on, be walking around my like dark cold house with my dog and be like, well, now I'm up, I might as well go. So there were a few little things I, I did that I now know were very grounded in habit research that just felt very intuitive to me. Make it as easy as possible, reduce as much friction as possible and make the goal showing up. And it also required less willpower. So I think one of the things people don't, they think about willpower and you think about it in terms of, I'm going to resist the temptation of the you know cake that's in the break room. And you think about this like very active resistance, but there are a zillion acts in our day before we even leave the house to go to work that require willpower, not hitting snooze, getting up out of bed brushing our teeth, all of these things require effort and willpower. And the more you can preserve that willpower for like the big things that you really want to do, the more you'll have. So to reduce the amount of willpower I had to use to not hit snooze, I had my clock radio set all the way across the room. I couldn't hit snooze. I had to physically get out of bed. And so that's how I learned not to hit snooze all of my clothes were ready. So I didn't have to like willpower my way to like finding my sports bra and my tights. Like, nope, they were all right there and super easy for me to put on. So I reduced the amount of willpower I had to use to make that habit successful as well. And that was really important because it meant I had more when it did come to things like, okay, now I'm going to try to eat healthy for the rest of the day, or I'm going to go to bed early or instead of, you know, watching another Netflix episode.
0: Totally, totally. No, that makes a ton of sense. Just trying to make it all very kind of simple And easy to do, so you don't really have to use up your willpower in order to actually go to the gym, what have you. So, as you're developing these new habits, you're becoming much more interested in nutrition, you're going to the gym, you're getting in shape. Where did you think, where did kind of whole 30 trickle in um, into your mind, or even that, hey, maybe I want to help other people with this goal, and maybe just even just a little capacity?
1: Yeah, so. Whole 30 started in April 2009. So, this is about nine years after my normal, rec, you know, I had begun a regular exercise routine. I started doing CrossFit in 2006, and that's when I really started paying attention to things like performance and recovery and started exercising in a more deliberate way. In 2009, Whole30 started as just a two-person self-experiment. My co-founder and I were sitting around after a really challenging Olympic lifting session, and I remember I was eating thin mints right out of the sleeve because I had you know, just exercised and I had earned them. And we were talking about this nutrition seminar we had recently attended that was talking about anti-inflammatory foods and food's influence on things like athletic performance and recovery. And my co-founder was like, what if we did this super squeaky clean like 30-day, really strict elimination protocol. Like we just you know, kind of stripped the last 20% of junk out of our diet and I'm eating my Thin Mints and I'm like, yeah, that sounds great, let's do it. Um, When do you wanna start? And he was like, let's start right now. And all the things that made me a really good drug addict make me really good at habit change because I can be like very black or white or on or off. So I handed my Thin Mints off to my friend Zach and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so the Whole30 was really just let's do this little self-experiment, clean up the last 20%. I was already eating what I thought was pretty healthy. I was like the healthiest person in my office. But what I wonder what that last kind of little cleanup would do. Um, I was hoping to see athletic performance and recovery improvements, and I certainly did. But I also saw tremendous improvements in energy. No more 2 p.m. had slumped on desk, need caffeine, need sugar. That was gone. I had Energizer Bunny energy all day long. I was sleeping so much better. My mood was so much happier. People at work were noticing that like, I was more talkative and more jovial. And it identified for me a dysfunctional relationship with food not that I ever had an eating disorder or anything, but like I was using food kind of the way I used to use drugs. As a reward, as a punishment, to self-soothe, to relieve anxiety, to show myself love. And in the absence of those foods for 30 days, I had to come up with other ways to manage my stress. And that actually felt really healthy and affirming for me. So because I had such a great experience, I shared about it on my CrossFit training blog. And a couple hundred people were like, I'd be interested in trying that. So I wrote up this really rudimentary set of rules And in July 2009, that was the start of the official, like, I guess the very first group
0: Whole30. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. When you first did what became Whole30, what was maybe like the hardest part about it in terms of maybe foods that you specifically had to give up?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really drinking much alcohol, so that was not hard. Um, I did miss my like Dunkin' Donuts iced turbo caramel latte in the morning. Cause like every morning before I, you know, after the gym, I would do my Dunkin' Donuts iced caramel latte and my like everything bagel with strawberry cream cheese, right? Getting those like good, healthy whole grains in. And I definitely missed that. So there was like a learning curve. If I'm not going to eat these whole grain, low fat, kind of bodybuilder type, like what everyone thought was healthy, then if I'm not gonna do that, like what am I gonna eat for breakfast? So definitely it was a learning curve there. There were specific foods like cheese that I really missed way more than I thought I would, which was ironic because when I reintroduced cheese, I realized that like it did not work well for me at all. And it also just made me super aware of how often they add sugar to things that you would not expect would have sugar in them. I don't know that there was any one aspect that was like harder than anything else. Cause I'm pretty good about like, if I say I'm going to do something, I just do it. But it was definitely a big learning curve in terms of grocery shopping and meal prepping.
0: Was there any, maybe cheese might be one of them, but was there any foods that you think, okay, I don't have a sensitivity here at all. And then we, you did a whole 30 and you're like, oh my gosh, I actually really do.
1: Big time. Dairy was huge for me. I used to eat like tubs of low fat cottage cheese that was like my jam because it was super high in protein and low in fat I ate a lot of like soft cheeses goat cheese feta cheese And when I reintroduced, and like Dan and Light and Fit yogurts, that was the one thing. I used to love those. And when I reintroduced them, all I could taste was like the artificial flavor in it. It didn't taste good anymore. And I was really surprised at how much my stomach and digestive tract like revolted at the idea of dairy. It did not go well for me. And I was so surprised. But I think what happened is that I had just been walking around like with not great digestion and bloated basically all the time. And it had just become my normal and I didn't really think anything of it. And it wasn't until I did the Whole30 that I was like, oh my gosh, my I can have like really smooth digestion. It took a couple weeks for it to even out. But once it did, I was like, okay, this is amazing. And I'm not bloated all the time. I noticed that like my skin wasn't breaking out as often. And again, my energy was so much better. So there were a lot of surprises, but that first Whole30 really identified this new like normal, this new standard that I actually could achieve just with making dietary changes. And that was now the standard by which I was measuring, like, is this food worth it or not? And those food sensitivity tests, you know, at the time, I didn't realize that I had a lot of issues with my gut. I probably had leaky gut, which is this sort of, you know, kind of colloquial term for like digestive disruption or intestinal permeability. So I probably had that, which meant that I was more sensitive to food than I would have been had my gut had been healed. For example, now I feel like I'm in a much better place with my gut, and I can do cheese way more often, and it's way it has like far fewer negative effects. Those food sensitivity tests can sometimes identify intolerances that aren't really intolerances, just because your gut is leaky and stuff is getting into your bloodstream where it doesn't belong. An elimination diet is still, by a lot of doctored standards, kind of still the gold standard in terms of identifying food sensitivities, and it's something that that. that anyone can do. You don't have to go through an RD, which requires money and time and privilege. You know, you don't have to be prescribed by your medical doctor. You can just eliminate foods for 30 days and add them back in at the end and see how they work for you. So it's a very low lift way of figuring out which foods may or may not work best in your system in this current context. What
0: was next when you were, as you were kind of in the early innings of of creating Whole30?
1: Yeah, so that's exactly what I did. I wrote up a really rudimentary set of rules and I was like, okay, here's what I did. Here's what I want you to follow for the next 30 days. I ran it all off of like a blog spot, blog post. So, you know, it was like people were asking questions and comments and I was responding and I was like, here's the deal. I'm gonna guide you through this for 30 days. If you have questions, let me know. I'll share from my own experience. If you have questions about like how to meal prep or what foods to eat or, you know, what to sub for certain things, I can help you. You need to do this for 30 days by the book. You can't like half do it or do it on weekends because that's not how an elimination diet works, right? You have to completely eliminate the foods that you're testing and then reintroduce them really like a scientific experiment. So like do this hundred percent or don't, but like if you're going to do it, you know, through me, I want you to do it the way that it's meant to be done. And then I walked people through it for 30 days and people asked questions and I answered those questions and it really wasn't until the end of those 30 days that their testimonials started rolling in and I realized oh, this is like, we have something here. This is something really good. You know, when two people do a self-experiment and they get amazing life-changing kind of similar results, you're like, that's interesting. When a hundred people write back and they're like, my energy skyrocketed, my sleep improved, my skin is better, my digestion is better, my cravings are gone, my inflammation is down. And then you start to hear things like, you know, my allergies got better. I didn't have any asthma attacks. I didn't have any migraines in those 30 days. Then you were like, wow. I mean, food is incredibly powerful, and that was the point where I was like, this is definitely something that we want to keep you know, talking about and promoting and making better and creating resources. And that's really how it snowballed from there.
0: No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And so once you realize that not only was this started off as an experiment, changed your own life, right? And really made you understand your body a bit better, but you're you slowly kind of turning into also a thought leader or someone that's actually helping other people really understand or identify their own bodies. And obviously with powerful reviews of it about you know how this is so life-changing. At that point, when you were thinking about, okay, what additional content or ways I could be helpful people, what was kind of the, the next step?
1: That was essentially it. It was... Me talking to my community, which continued to just slowly grow from there going, okay, what else do you need? What do you need to be helpful here? What could I do? What could I give you? And people would go, you know, it'd be really helpful to have a shopping list. Cause like, I don't really know what to buy when I go to the grocery store now. If I'm not doing, you know, breads and cereals and pastas and rice as my side dish, what should I get? And I was like, okay, I'll create a shopping list for you. And then it was, you know, there's a lot of like, how do I put a meal together? How much should I be eating? Should I be counting calories, tracking calories? And we were like, no, we really, you're not restricting calories. You're not counting calories. This is not a weight loss program. You're going to eat to satiety. But like, we want to make sure you're eating enough. So here's a general baseline that you can use within, you know, a range to accommodate for like how big you are and how active you are and et cetera. Um, How to stock your pantry, how to order, dine out at a restaurant. This was back in 2009. So there were no Whole30 bowls at Chipotle. There was no Primal Kitchen mayo or like shelf upon shelf of Whole30 approved goods to, you know, pick from. There wasn't even a mayo. We were like making our own mayo, making our own bone broth. Like it was walking uphill, you know, in the snow both ways. So I wanted to just offer as many resources as I could to make it easy for people. And every good idea I've ever had for the Whole30 comes from the community and from comes from them saying, I could use this, I could use some recipes, this would be helpful, or me noticing a pain point and going, oh, I have an idea about how I can make this easier for you. And so that's really where I spent the next two years of my Whole30 life is just creating things to make people more successful with the program.
0: And when you say creating things, it seems like As you describe it, it's a lot of like consumer education in terms of shopping lists and, you know, things that you should eat versus that you shouldn't eat. And when you go into a grocery store, which if you want to keep to a specific regimen, can be pretty overwhelming. So it's really trying to understand what people actually should be eating or or how they should be shopping if they do want to subscribe to a Whole30 diet. And then also as well, is this when you also started to introduce your own products in terms of um, your own dressings or no?
1: That didn't happen until like 2020.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. It took us a long time. It took us a long time before we started focusing on our own products. I was really, for the first two or three years... It was traveling three weekends out of a month to various CrossFit gyms, talking to people about how to do the Whole30, creating resources, really codifying the rules and making sure they were really clear and well thought out. And then there was a, I wrote a ton of articles, a ton of articles. Like why do I have to do this for 30 days, a hundred percent by the books and what is reintroduction and why is it important? And how do I talk to my family about doing Whole30? And Should I be eating fruit? Why shouldn't I be counting calories? Why isn't this a weight loss diet? There was so much information and people had so many questions about it that I just was plugging holes and being like, okay, let me create something for you. So, you know, for a really long time, we gave almost everything away for free. There was a ton of writing and resource creation. We did some workshops, kind of educating people around the Whole30. And it wasn't until 2012 that the very first Whole30 book came out. So, you know, three years later came the decision of like, okay, maybe we should write a book about it. And then we won't have to, you know, do workshops for a hundred people at a time, three weekends a month. We can just say like, hey, we wrote a whole book about it. And that's all you'll need to do. And so that's really where like the first book, it starts with food came from.
0: That's amazing. That's that's really cool. Was it also hard because during this period, like the early 2010s, there was also paleo and, you know, maybe some other diets too that were, or lifestyles that were coming out that were, you know, became quite popular. Was it hard to make you know whole 30 maybe distinctive towards of you know all the other kind of diets that were kind of around or or just kind of on the verge of getting started.
1: You know, I never really thought about it. I never I know that there were other 30 or 21 day programs floating around. I know that lots of people were doing paleo. It was kind of the tail end of zone in CrossFit land, but a lot of people were doing paleo I never really thought about it. I never really looked at what other people were doing. I knew that the Whole 30 was really good and it worked so well for the vast majority of people who were doing it. And that was all I focused on. I just put my head down and thought, how can I help the people who are coming to me to do Whole 30? So I've never really been a big fan of like keeping an eye on the competition and, you know, wondering what they're doing and thinking about tailoring our approach to meet those. I've always just been really focused on what I know is really good about what we do and just making it even better. And I didn't think it was hard to to kind of differentiate ourselves because i felt like i've always had such a strong voice and my voice has been the voice of whole 30 since day 1 so it's been consistent and the voice has been you know there and the program has always been incredibly well defined and that was always something that was just really easy to fall back on
0: how do you also think about you know iterating within whole 30 in terms of Uh, maybe what ingredients or products maybe should be on the diet or should be not. I think that that is what to me is also really fascinating about Whole30. Because I know that you make changes and are kind of thinking about, because I'm sure you're extremely meticulous when it comes to what ingredients maybe should be on the diet versus not. How do you think about that and the progression of Whole30 through the years?
1: Yeah, we are always, always looking at The foundation for our rules and our support. We're always looking at the science and, you know, has the science changed? If it's changed or our understanding of the science has changed, then we're going to make a rule change. We did that recently when we removed the rule that said you can't have MSG on the Whole30. That's been a rule since 2009, no MSG. And a couple years ago, I started doing some research into it and realized that the science behind the demonization of MSG is actually super rooted in racism and not particularly well-grounded in evidence-based science. And there isn't really enough evidence... For us to say, no, you shouldn't eat it on a whole 30. So we reverse that rule. So we're always looking at the science. We're always, you know, I've got a team of clinical advisors that are MDs and NDs and RDs and healthcare providers that we go to and we have questions about this stuff and try to reach a consensus. We also have now more than 12 years of clinical experience on the whole 30. So even if the science is iffy on something where it's like oh man like this could be something that we'd want to eliminate according to the science or maybe like the science says it could be really healthy for some people we'll go back to the clinic our clinical experience and if the vast majority of whole 30 years say no i actually did notice when i reintroduced this i had a problem then we'll continue to leave it out so there's no magic to it it's not like i can definitively say one way or the other because everybody's different and then there is cha- it is challenging to create one set of rules that works as well as possible for as broad a range of people as possible, but we're always talking about the rules and the guidelines and Whole30 approved products and can you have this and can you have that. We have lengthy internal discussions with the Whole30 HQ team. And sometimes, you know, two or three years later, we'll reverse our position on something because when we know better, we want to do better. And I feel really good about taking that stance.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. I found really interesting and, and really um, appreciated how there seems to be like an evolution always in terms of the brand and Whole30, in terms of what is on the diet and what's not. It's not just, this is it and this is always going to be it. It's always kind of, you're always kind of thinking and, and kind of iterating on what products should be on and off, which is really cool.
1: As I mentioned to you earlier, as the food landscape changes... We also have to iterate. Like when we were making the rules, cauliflower did not know that it could become pizza crust and pasta and all of the, and tortilla chips and all the other things that cauliflower is now in. So as companies find new creative ways to offer gluten free, grain free, dairy free products, we have to look at those and go, does this fit the spirit and intention of the whole 30? Like just because you can make a cauliflower tortilla chip does that mean we want you to eat it on Whole30 so there are a lot of things like as the food landscape changes as our understanding of diet culture changes and the science changes of course we're always iterating and we're always talking about it and we're always evolving and I think it's you know for the better I don't know that I would trust a program that hasn't changed at all in the last 12 years that feels weird to me. It's really wonderful when brands like Applegate, for example, you know, a couple years ago, they took the sugar out of their bacon and reached out and said like, hey, we want to make our bacon Whole30 approved and we remove the sugar to make it approved. Awesome, right? The fact that brands like Applegate and Organicville are looking at the Whole30 guidelines and saying, we want to make products specifically that fit our guidelines and we're willing to change our product formulations to do that. You know, Chipotle is another example. Like, that's amazing. And that means that people's voices are being heard. It's also fantastic for people who discover they have a gluten sensitivity or a dairy sensitivity or a soy sensitivity that now they can still eat tortilla chips or you know, birthday cake or whatever cream cheese and not have to worry about eating this food that they love, but that also like messing with their digestion or their symptoms. The thing that's challenging is that the education we have to do around the idea that just because it's grain-free or gluten-free or dairy-free doesn't automatically make it healthy. And so there is some education around that, just as we saw with like low fat, you know, back in the nineties, like just because it says low fat doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because it says keto doesn't mean it's healthy. But I like the opportunity to educate like that. I think people come to the Whole30 in part because they want to learn how to read a food label and what's in their food and how to make the best choices for them. And one of the things we do really well is educate our community about some of these nuances of the new food products that
0: they're seeing. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, that leads me to my next question with those examples. like How did you early on approach relationships and maybe partnerships with brands that maybe then they could tie in and say that they're Whole30 friendly? Yeah.
1: So the very first brand we approached is no longer in business. Shout out to Primal Packs based in Seattle. But they, this was like 2010, they were making a sugar free, like jerky snack mix. It was like nuts and dried mango and sugar free, like beef jerky. And you couldn't find sugar free on the go, like meat, you know, jerky like that. And so I reached out to the owner and I was like, hey, your ingredients meet our Whole 30 products. I can introduce you to my audience and you just can tell your audience that you're Whole30 approved. And, you know, this is like a win-win. I'm going to introduce your product to more people. My people are going to have now have an option that they didn't, you know, an easily identifiable option. And I get the, you know, tie in with this brand that makes this product that like, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make a sugar-free jerky. That's not what I do. And so that's how it started. And some of our earliest partners like um, LaCroix and Epic and Sea Snacks are still with us today and it really started because I was like you make great products that fit our program I want to be able to send my people to you so that they don't have to read so many labels like what do you say and these brands were like yeah that sounds good and you know fast forward now we have over 140 Whole30 approved partners and some really fantastic and big names like Chipotle and like Applegate and LaCroix and Waterloo and you know all of these really fun brands but that's how it started it just started because there was a need within the community and if it just really was like a, a win all around. Everybody benefited from the association brand by brand name, by, you know, consumer choice, um, and the fact that now my consumers were able to be more successful with the program because they had some convenience products.
0: For the first few years, um, I don't want to say it like this, but it was very much like a content business, right? You were producing books. You became a New York Times bestseller. You were obviously writing a tons of posts. You were engaging with your community. What were the hardest parts about managing like a content oriented business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would still say we're very much a media company. We're still very content forward and content heavy. I think part of it is just the workload. I was the rate limiting factor for a while because I did all the writing. So like I can only write so much. So that's always definitely, you know, challenging keeping up with new platforms and technology. So, you know, at first it was the blog and our Whole30 forum. And then it was Facebook. And then it was Instagram. And then we did a foray into Snapchat. And then it was, are we on TikTok and are we on Clubhouse? And, you know, so as social media has grown and evolved, we've grown and evolved with it. And it's been wonderful. We couldn't, you know, run our business anywhere near as effectively without it. But that requires a lot of labor and time and attention. And now maybe more of a strategy than we used to have. So that's certainly been challenging. And then there's just a lot of content out there. It's easier to develop a fiercely loyal, Audience and a really strong connection with that audience when you're talking one on one to them. And for a long time, I had the opportunity to do that. I was doing it in person, at book tour events, and at workshops. You know, social media was still like a smaller venue where you could actually posts were algorithmic or you could, you know, you were seeing the posts that you really wanted to see. And we were having those one on one connections. And now it feels like the majority of our followers, you know, you're not seeing as much of what we're posting. And our audience doesn't know us as well or know me as well. So we've shifted a lot of our content now to our newsletter, which is far more of a direct one-on-one connection, but you're you're just always thinking about that now. You're always thinking about how can I maintain the connection as things change? How can I maintain that relationship with my audience? And then as we grew and started incorporating sponsored content into what we did, it was how do we make sure that we continue to provide real value-added information without weighing so heavily on sponsored content that it starts to feel like we're always just selling people something. And we've always erred far more on the side of value than we have sponsored content, probably to the detriment of our own profit most of the time, but like, I'm comfortable with that because the relationship we've built with our audience is our number one priority, always.
0: How do you make sure that Whole30 kind of falls into and becomes more like the trend side of, of that it actually is a lifestyle, it's a really big change, and make sure that not only somebody does Whole30 and obviously hopefully enjoys it, but beyond after they finish that 30 days, that they're still kind of in the loop that they want to kind of keep going and it becomes actually, they almost maintain that, that lifestyle change.
1: The first thing, and this is gonna sound really obvious, but it's often overlooked, you have to have a really good product. If our product wasn't very good and didn't work that well, it wouldn't matter how slick our marketing campaigns were or our content was or how much I wrote. People aren't gonna stick around because it's not that effective. And what the thing about Whole30 is that it is so incredibly effective for the vast majority of people to the point where when you do it, you wanna talk about it with everybody. It's one of those things like CrossFit or Burning Man where it's like, let me tell you about. Whole30. I want to proselytize because it was so great for me. And I think everyone could have this experience and should have this experience. So we grow tremendously via word of mouth and remain relevant because the program is so good and it works so well. I don't just want to get people in this sales funnel for this 30 days to sell them this thing. Like We are building community ahead of everything. And with that community, we're talking about life before Whole30, life in your Whole30, life after your Whole30 and your food freedom and what that looks like and tangential things, you know, that are habit related and relationship and self-care aren't necessarily tied into just those 30 days. We're talking to people about having a growth mindset and really reframing the idea of like your identity as a person and how do you become or how do you see yourself as that healthy person with healthy habits and staying connected to this community is a really effortless way for people to remind themselves that I am a healthy person with healthy habits and I can give back to others in the community now that I've done the Whole30 and I'm an alumni, which feels really good. And if something knocks me off of my you know, food freedom, a stressful event or a holiday, I can come back to the Whole30 and reset again and that feels really good. So- I don't know that we've necessarily like, tried to build in a life cycle of keeping people involved, but they stay involved long after their Whole30 is over because our continued commitment is to providing value-added content for our community at any phase, in all phases.
0: When did you decide that it was the right time to launch your own products and why was that the right period?
1: So we had been talking about it for a while. And in fact, many of our Whole30 approved partners in conversation had been like, why aren't you doing some of this yourself? Like you could be creating your own Whole30 branded line of X, Y, and Z, you know, in addition to partnering with us, right? Um, But I think we went into it very cautiously because we had never really sold anything to our community. We had products for sale, of course. We sold books. We have an SMS text message service. We have 100, 200 Whole30 certified coaches who you know, sell services to coach you through the Whole30. But CPG, Consumer Packaged Goods, was like a very definitive, like we are going to sell you this product. So we went into it pretty cautiously, wanting to make sure that the community was right for it, that we weren't just you know, putting out a line of like Whole30 branded spatulas just to try to make some money. Like we wanted to be really intentional with it. And it took a while, but we thought about where we were seeing pain points, products where we thought we could add our own unique kind of flair or unique touch. And we landed on this line of five different salad dressings. Salad dressings made with, you know, ingredients that even exceed the Whole30 standards with recipes that came from my own kitchen. So, you know, there's a... Creamy balsamic that I used to like concoct myself out of two or three different ingredients at home. There's a buffalo vinaigrette because I used to put hot sauce on my salads and everyone thought it was weird, but it's actually amazing. We made a secret sauce that's a play on Utah's fry sauce, which is a condiment here in Salt Lake City that is so great and we elevated it. Of course, we made our own version of ranch because, like, I don't even think you can whole 30 without ranch, but our version is, you know, so delicious. We just wanted to make it like extra herby and extra thick. So, that was kind of what we decided. We spent about a year and a half in, you know, thinking about production and design and we launched in the middle of a pandemic in August of 2020.
0: Well, it seems like as well since you approached it maybe conservatively when you when, when you first came out. I mean, also since you said that you didn't go into retail when you first came out. It was in uh, the pandemic. It's something that was a bit fortuitous considering what was kind of going on in the world. So that makes sense. What has been the reaction so far of your products?
1: The communities loved it. They just love having the extra options. Our flavors definitely added something to the mix that wasn't already there. They love being able to add them, you know, through their normal order at Thrive Market. I hear again and again, I love just seeing whole 30s on the label so I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to worry what's in the ingredients. I don't have to worry if, you know, the ingredients are good enough or if they it satisfies my like specific dietary requirements. I know if I see whole 30, I can eat it. People seem to really love the flavor. We've got hundreds of like five star reviews on our website so that's been really good our partners have been incredibly supportive you know they love the idea of making whole 30 more visible in the marketplace because it makes their whole 30 logo on the front of their bottle stand out even more so overall i think it's been incredibly successful we're really happy with how it's gone
0: that's awesome and since you obviously work with a ton of partner products has that at all been challenging since you're launching a cpg brand yourself
1: so I had conversations with a few key partners ahead of time before we launched. And I was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, we're going to be doing this. And I just wanted to have like a conversation with you ahead of time. How, how do you feel about it? What are your thoughts? Um, I have very good relationships with almost all of our Whole30 Approved partners and very close personal relationships with some of the biggest ones. And t- to a point, every single one of them was like, we think this is great. Let us know if we can help. Like They really recognize that a rising tide lifts all ships, as one of them said. And the more valuable the Whole30 logo is, the more valuable their logo is on their product. And we've made a conscientious effort at Whole32. We just work our own products into the normal rotation of talking about products. So if you look at even my personal Instagram, it's going to be incredibly well-balanced in terms of the products I'm using every day at home and what I share on my Instagram story. Like we're not putting our products ahead of any of our partners. We're just working it into the normal rotation. So I don't think our community or anybody feels like there's anything kind of odd or off about it. It's just there's like another Whole30 product that you can use if you're looking for a salad dressing.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. This is a pretty broad question and we can take it in whichever direction you think is worthy. But what do you think is maybe one of the most misunderstood parts about nutrition and wellness today?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of competing information. I mean, you could say this about any period of time. There's a ton of competing information out there about what's good and what's not good. Food is very often moralized. Certain foods are good. Certain foods are bad. You're good when you eat them or you're bad when you eat them. And I think that's made even more pronounced with social media. It used to be that if you heard someone talking about nutrition, it was like in your doctor's office or maybe on like a TV show and now it feels like anybody who has access to like an iPhone and an Instagram account can become an authority on nutrition. So I like the idea and this is what every like registered dietitian in the world will say is you know there's no one size fits all. You have to figure out what works for you. And I think people really understand that idea and enjoy that idea and like want to embrace that idea. But I think there's a lot of confusion about how to figure out what works for you. So the reason I think that I like Whole30 so much is that is the answer to how. this Here, take this self-experiment and use it to figure out what works for you. And if what works for you is eating nothing but gluten and dairy for the next 20 years, Awesome. Go do it. I think that's great for you. I love that for you. If it works, super. And if it doesn't work for you, like find your own way. You know, we have a 100% plant-based program now, so it's like if you decide a plant-based diet works better or some combination of both. I I think one of the most misunderstood things is just this idea that there's any one way that is somehow going to be like a magic bullet for you. And I don't think that's true. Even with my own diet having done the whole 30 several times, it's I am always evolving. My context is always evolving. Food is always evolving. My health is always evolving. And what worked for me four years ago doesn't work the same way for me now. So the kind of bad news is that it's always a process and you're always going to have to, if you want really optimal health and to optimize what you're eating and to feel as good as you can, you're going to have to pay attention. But the good news is that you now no longer have to live by anybody else's food rules you get to decide for yourself from a place of you know an educated informed decision what works best for you and i like the idea of empowering people like that
0: what's one book that has inspired you personally and one book that has inspired you professionally
1: well personally you know i'm going to talk about the comfort crisis i talk about that book All the time. It's hands down one of my favorite books. It talks about by Michael Easter. And it talks about the idea that our modern day comforts, our comfort in our level of hunger and our temperature and how cozy we are and how hard we have to work, You know, maybe all of that comfort isn't in our best interest, and there's actually a lot to be said in terms of uh, managing stress better and training our nervous system to handle stress better to purposefully make ourselves uncomfortable once in a while. So that's a book for sure that has inspired me personally, and I recommend it to everyone. I think one of the books that inspired me the most professionally is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I absolutely loved his story of building Nike, and I think what it impressed upon me the most was this idea that, like, you think all of these big companies, these huge, you know, the Nikes of the world, they must have always had their stuff together. Like, they always had it figured out, and Shoe Dog was so brilliant and beautiful because you saw stories of him like packing up shoes in his garage and kind of making things work as he needed to make them work. And I just love that idea of going behind the scenes and being a little more open and vulnerable and realizing like nobody has it fully together. And also that's okay. And also that doesn't mean that you won't get it together in your own way. So that was a book that inspired me professionally.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I really appreciate you sharing both. I mean, with Shoe Dog, I think that one of the big takeaways, too, is there's so many times where Nike couldn't have made it. Yeah. There's so many moments that it almost didn't work out. And so, and of course, Nike, you know, one of the largest companies in the world, and, you know, they obviously did work out. And so maybe there's a thin line between, you know, success and failure. It's funny, Shoe Dog is the number one book that guests on the show recommend. But Comfort Crisis no one has recommended yet. So I am so glad that you brought it up. Um, It is a great read. My final question to you is, what is one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: I think if I could go back and tell myself as a founder this, I would say do not be sucked into like the toxic hustle culture of entrepreneuring. You do not have to light yourself on fire to make your clients and customers warm. In fact, if you run yourself into the ground for the sake of your business, you're not actually doing anybody any good. So I would absolutely tell folks like stand, make sure you pay yourself first, make sure you're sleeping make sure you're eating. Don't subscribe to this idea of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead or, you know, hustling 24 seven or when you're sleeping, I'm working like, no, 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 we're done with that. That's like old news. Now what we're doing is sleeping eight hours a night and we're taking our mental health days and we are setting boundaries around our capacity. And we are making sure that we show up for ourselves first so that we can show up for our clients and customers in our business. That's what I would say.
0: I love that. I love that. I totally agree with that. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun to chat.
1: Oh, Mike, it was great. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. And there you have it. It was amazing having Melissa on the podcast. I highly recommend checking out her newsletter as well, which you can subscribe to at melissayou.com. Also check out Whole30. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.